Saudi Arabia had a reputation, you know, 10, 15 years ago for being hesitant on climate issues. But I think right now it's fair to say that senior policymakers in the kingdom understand the issues surrounding climate and the challenges that that's creating. Welcome to The Wharton Current. This is your host, Adriel Barrett-Johnson. In this episode, I sat down with Adam Siminski, who just wrapped up his term being president of CAPSARC, the advisory body to Saudi authorities on energy and climate. In this episode, we talk about the role of a think tank in advising policymakers on climate, how the energy transition is discussed within Saudi Arabia, and the challenges that exist for a country where 65% of the national budget comes from oil profits as they set goals toward net zero carbon emissions. Personally, I really felt like I was coming back to my public sector roots and the organizations that help make the public sector more effective. This episode raised questions on the potential of carbon capture at scale, which we did not get into in detail in this episode, but we will be sure to have an episode dedicated to that later this season. Today, we have Adam Siminski, whose experience advising governments on energy includes both running the Energy Information Administration at the U.S. Department of Energy, and most recently being president of CAPSARC, the advisory body to Saudi authorities on energy and climate. To start, could you please share an overview of CAPSARC and your career journey advising governments on energy that led you to CAPSARC? Sure. First of all, thank you very much to you and Wharton for inviting me to do this. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with, with learners as well as graduates who are listening to this podcast. CAPSARC is an independent institution. It's neither government nor private. We're funded by an endowment and we have an independent board of trustees who are the ultimate authority for CAPSARC. What we try to do is to be very, very interested in fostering knowledge and analysis in the areas of energy, economic and energy modeling, electricity, climate, urban infrastructure, transportation, and energy-related data collection. So those are the main areas that we, we follow. We have been in existence since... 2007, the campus that we are on in Riyadh was completed around 2014, 2015. We have a couple hundred employees now, half of whom are involved in uh, knowledge, analysis, consulting, and so on. And we're doing that not just for the energy ecosystem here in the kingdom and policymakers in the kingdom. But we're trying to be timely and relevant enough to have our work be useful to the public and policymakers all around the world. That's a big job. <laughs> well, you know, one of the interesting things is over the past five years, CAPSARC has gone from being ranked 60th to number 12 uh, energy-related think tank globally. Uh, and that, by the way, that survey was done by the University of Pennsylvania. They had been involved in doing a think tank survey for many years. And CAPSAR started participating in that. And it was actually really helpful to look at the kinds of things that are 
deemed to be useful by our peers in terms of the kinds of things that think tanks do. And it helped us focus our activities in areas that made us more interesting to our local audience as well as regional and national. And what is the dynamic like with policymakers within the kingdom? What is the structure of those interactions? How are you advising your local audience? One of the things that became obvious to our chairman, who is also the Minister of Energy, is that there was a great need in the kingdom for people who were trained in how to think about public policy choices. There are a lot of consultants that work in the kingdom uh, that provide interesting advice and solutions, but they often don't stay around to help with the implementation of those things. And we're trying to find some way through CAPSARC to make it easier, in a sense, to take some of the advice that comes from MBAs and MPPs and MPAs and actually convert that into useful policy projects for the kingdom. And so would you say that the research that CAPSARC is putting out is then used and read by policymakers, or is it that you all are actively advising on the formulation of policies as they're being made, all of the above, just wanting to understand what those interactions are like? The uh, phrase that you use there towards the end, Adriel, is one that I was going to say is all of the above. We have a lot of publications. They're available on our website, capsarc.org. <laughs> and there's a lot of data that's available on the same website. So it's energy and economic related data for Saudi Arabia and also uh, the region. But we do a lot of workshops, and those workshops are held in Saudi Arabia. We also work with other institutions around the world and host workshops in, in cities in many different places. We've you know, done them in London and, and Paris and Amsterdam and Tokyo and Washington and New York and, and so on. Again, trying to find a way to examine urgent policy issues in, in energy and economics using smart people from all over the globe. And how would you describe the stance within Saudi Arabia toward climate and the energy transition? And then in the nearly five years that you've been there, how have you seen that change over time? Right. Saudi Arabia had a reputation, you know, 10, 15 years ago for being hesitant on climate issues. But I think right now it's fair to say that senior policymakers in the kingdom understand the issues surrounding climate and the challenges that that's creating in terms of temperatures and and other effects that we're seeing from the rise in emissions, including carbon dioxide, methane, and other greenhouse gases. Saudi Arabia was one of the early signers of the Paris Agreement in 2015. Saudi Arabia has participated, and I would say, in a constructive manner in all of the COP meetings since then. The kingdom was the host of the G20 meetings and summit. And as part of that, 
the G20 leaders actually adopted a proposal that was made by the Saudis for the thing that we call the circular carbon economy approach, basically saying that all of the options and technologies for managing climate challenges are going to be really, really necessary and important. So the four R's framework was adopted by the G20. Reduce, reuse, recycle, and remove. On the reduce side, just for example, you find things like renewables and efficiency. Nuclear falls under that category, and the kingdom has actually been very interested in all of those. There are big efficiency programs under the way in the kingdom for things like automobiles, for industrial motors, electric lighting, and, you know, like all of the standard things. Big projects for renewables, including solar, photovoltaic, PV, and wind. There's a goal in the kingdom that by 2030 or shortly after that, half of the electricity in the kingdoms or half of the capacity should be coming from renewables. The rest coming from natural gas, moving away from oil, for example. Lots of activities to look at how to reuse and recycle carbon dioxide. One of the other things that falls under this category that was removed, and that includes things like nature-based solutions for taking CO2 out of the air, direct air capture, finding ways to store carbon dioxide either geologically, and there's a lot of places to do that in the kingdom, or nature-based solutions for storage, and including not just trees, but ocean-based solutions. And a lot of activity research is underway at KAUST, the University for Science and Technology, to do that. The reason I bring this up is that it comes back to the question that you're asking, is how would you characterize the Saudi view of the climate? I'd say that it's, it's really pretty straightforward. Saudis, like virtually every other country in the world, recognize that there's a problem. They don't want to be part of the problem. And in fact, it makes sense from an economic diversification standpoint here to lead in trying to provide solutions and solutions across the board in all four of these areas, just as an example. And that makes sense. But at the same time, you know, I understand that the government is under a lot of constraint in the sense that more than half of the budget comes from profits from Saudi Aramco, from oil profits. And so if we quickly need to be in a situation where we're not taking more oil out of the ground, that's going to be tough. And so I understand that with the framework of the circular carbon economy, a pretty significant portion of that framework has the assumption that carbon capture is going to be effective, economically feasible at large scale, and that will be able to offset a large portion of Saudi and world emissions. So it's been critiqued as being too dependent on carbon capture, on the removed part of the four R's. What critiques do you think are fair of that and what fail to understand the plan? First of all, I think that that's a really good question and it's really important and it gives me an opportunity, I think, to try to show why taking a broad, pragmatic approach makes a lot of sense. In one sense, it's not the fuels that are the problem, it's the emissions. I mean, from the very beginning, we know that that the emissions from fossil fuels had problems. Soot is a, is a problem. 
carbon dioxide is the most recent one, but before that, we were looking at sulfur oxides that caused acid rain. And we, and we looked at nitrogen oxides and the tendency of that to create smog and so on. <laughs> so in one sense, thinking of, of carbon dioxide as an emission that needs to be managed and controlled, I think, is a more productive way of thinking about how to deal with climate change and climate challenges. There are people that say, well, let's just stop burning, you know, hydrocarbons. Reality is that that's extremely difficult to do. Right now, 80% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels or hydrocarbons. And that number has been relatively steady for decades, even decades of trying to reduce carbon dioxide. And there are a billion people in the world that don't have electricity. There's a billion and a half people in the world that don't have clean cooking fuels, in many cases, using hydrocarbons as a way to supply clean cooking fuels, for example, propane, might have huge positive you know, benefits for society. Okay, but we know that there'll be carbon emissions associated with that. How do we deal with it? And I think the answer is we have to find ways to do in carbon management what we managed to do over the past two decades with solar, electricity, and wind. In just the last decade alone, the cost of solar photovoltaic panels has come down by an order of magnitude. We need to do the same thing with direct air capture. We need to do the same thing with other ways of, of using carbon dioxide. There's a lot of construction that takes place in the world. Manufacturing cement is, is a generator of carbon dioxide when there are ways to make cement that generate less carbon dioxide. There are ways to cure concrete using carbon dioxide that would lock it up almost as effectively as other ways of almost but not quite permanent removal of carbon dioxide. So I think what I'd come back to is that the attitude the Saudis are taking is that they understand that they have a large dependency on producing oil, but they, they want to find a way to do that that doesn't ruin the environment. And taking the lead on developing technologies associated with managing the emissions from the oil that's produced and used globally is seen as actually a way to diversify the economy. People who say, well, we don't have enough time to do that. I, I think what we really need to do is to dramatically accelerate the research development demonstration of these new technologies. Typically, that's how things have gotten done in the world in the past in many different areas. And I think that it's more likely to be effective finding a way through good governance, good laws and regulations and good technology to deal with this problem is going to be more effective ultimately than trying to ban the use of, of something that people find to be very convenient. My understanding of the approach is essentially we can't stop producing oil financially. Those are the constraints that the country has because it would be so economically devastating to the country that they can't you know, and you know, and not just not just to Saudi Arabia. I mean, to sure <laughs> a lot of countries. Yeah, um, both consumers and producers. <laughs> 
Absolutely. And, you know, energy security has never been a more relevant topic than right now with the war in Europe. So essentially saying, okay, we're not going to make less oil, but what we can do is with the profits from that, we can invest a large amount in climate tech, in the technologies that will enable the transition. And that piece of it is really admirable and that makes sense. And that is a way for them to diversify the economy so that in the future, they could be less dependent on oil for the budget. But at the same time, it seems like for the climate, continuing to produce oil at the same rate and even to produce more oil, my understanding is that rates of production are going up and Saudi Ramco is drilling for more oil. There's no slowing down here on the oil front. It is also unequivocally going to harm the climate in a way that I think isn't going to be able to be offset by technology. And so it seems like there's a hard reality there where as much as they invest in technology, that's not necessarily going to be enough. And at some point, they're going to need to reduce the amount of oil that they are producing and consuming, right? And I, I, I get that it's on both sides there, um, but the world needs to use less oil. So I would come back to trying to focus on the emissions rather than the fuel itself. It doesn't really matter if you're burning oil, if you can remove all of the carbon dioxide and other emissions that are associated with that. So the idea that we could continue to use oil because it is extremely convenient in so many different applications, but find some other way to deal with the carbon dioxide that's associated with the combustion of that fuel is, is to me, makes a great deal of sense. And, and along those lines, there are six countries, big producers, who have joined together to create an organization called the Net Zero Producers Forum. The idea is how do you get to net zero? The six countries are Canada, Norway, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and the United States. These countries together are responsible for you know, more than half of global oil and natural gas production. And what they're saying is they understand that oil and natural gas are problematic, but that pragmatic solutions need to be advanced rather than what might sound like a workable solution. Well, let's just stop burning it when in fact doing so could be far more expensive than looking to manage it. And, and there are some really simple things that could be done Im immediately. When the Net Zero Producers Forum looked around at the problems with greenhouse gases, one of the things that they recognized was that methane was a, a huge problem and had solutions that might actually be easier to implement and get a really good start on managing climate challenges than trying to deal immediately with carbon dioxide. We have to do everything at the same time, but ignoring methane is, is not a good idea. Saudi Arabia, it turns out, actually has a pretty good track record in methane. There have been Two independent peer-reviewed studies done that say that Saudi Arabia has one of the lowest carbon footprints associated with its oil of many countries. It's a question of how much energy is needed 
to get the oil out of the ground. So how much oil or gas do you burn to get the oil and gas out? Saudi Arabia is very efficient in its production. But if you don't have to use a lot of energy to get the oil out of the ground, that really helps the progress. There are a lot of countries that could actually learn from the best practices in this area that Saudi Arabia and Aramco that you mentioned has actually been able to put into place. It's just an example of, of my thinking of one of the ways to try to look at this from a practical standpoint so that you can actually get something done that's meaningful, that helps the climate, but allows economic activity and the benefits associated with energy consumption to continue. So uh, if we could get all of the countries in the world to follow the methane control that exists in Saudi Arabia, it would actually really improve things. I absolutely appreciate the point that in the process of extracting and producing oil, you want the people to do that, to be the people who are the absolute experts in it. This is one of my issues with the way that a number of companies have been reducing their stated carbon footprint. It's by selling oil assets off, divesting from them. And often what that means is that they are then sold to and run by organizations with less experience in doing so. And so they're run much less safely with much higher carbon footprint from the operations themselves. So I appreciate that in Saudi Arabia, they'd be one of the most efficient at doing that. Moving back to talking about CAPSARC and your tenure as president, how did you set priorities for the organization? You know, what CAPSARC has been doing, and it's been helped along in this process greatly by Prince Abdulaziz as the chairman and the new president here, Fahad Al-Ajlan. We've become, I'd say, more timely and relevant to policymakers, both in the kingdom and outside. We are much more responsive to looking at things that policymakers are struggling with, both here in the kingdom and elsewhere. CAPSARC has done a lot of work on things like electricity price reform. We have one of the more easily usable models of the Saudi economy that has been of use to other ministries in addition to the Ministry of Energy. So there is a great value, I think, associated with having an institution that's seen as providing independent and thoughtful research as unbiased as anybody you know, can be to try to help with policy issues that are under consideration. Looking forward here at CAPSARC, what we're trying to do is, in addition to being a think tank that does good academic research, we want to be seen as good consultants on issues that are important to policymakers. And those two things actually go hand in hand, in my view. You can't really be a good consultant without having a factual knowledge base and the analytical tools to enable you to examine an issue and come up with, with solutions. There are lots of things that people are looking at. One of the academic papers that was done a few years ago here at CAPSARC looked at OPEC's fair capacity, and that's a big issue right now. And the conclusion of this peer-reviewed study was that the use of spare capacity to take oil off the market when that had to be done or to 
add oil to the markets when that was necessary has actually provided a net positive economic benefit to the world of something like $200 billion a year. The availability of spare capacity to reduce volatility in the global markets is something that adds to security and economic well-being. And oil producers don't often get a lot of credit for that, but it's something that's real. And, you know, the United States has done that in the past in, at the Texas Railroad Commission. And OPEC has also tried to, I would say, reduce the volatility in the markets, and they're very concerned about that. It turns out that stable markets are good for producers as well as consumers. You know, there are often questions that get raised about, well, is the price too low or is the price too high? Generally speaking, the markets themselves are the ones that drive that. But reducing volatility is seen by virtually every economist that I've ever known as a, as a net positive. And I absolutely appreciate the need for accessible, stable energy. Um, right. And the ways that that is fundamental to well-being. Prior to Wharton, I was working in West Africa on a USAID energy project. And a lot of my work was about essentially helping people get access in the first place. And when you're at that point where you don't have access or you are a policymaker in a country where you don't have stable and affordable access to energy, your first priority is to have access to energy. And your second priority is for it to be from sustainable sources. So I appreciate that hierarchy of priorities in a lot of places in the world. And I think that is what makes a lot of things in the energy transition a challenge where you have these constraints. People really need energy. On the other hand, we also have, to me, an equally hard constraint of we absolutely have to reduce emissions as soon as possible and dramatically. And so that's why, that's why it's a hard problem to work on. Right. <laughs> when you made the jump from advising the U.S. government at a high level on energy to advising the kingdom on energy at a high level, what was that like? Well, you know, very similar in a lot of ways because policymakers are facing the same set of questions regardless of where they are in the world. It's kind of along the lines of, of what you just said a minute ago, Adriel, is you need clean, affordable, and sustainable energy. And how do you go about getting that. And so what, what I would say is that the thing that maybe would surprise people is, is that the problems are very similar in Saudi Arabia and the United States. It's one of the reasons why Saudi Arabia and the United States were two of the countries driving this net zero producers forum, because they have very similar interests. The U.S. is a large energy producer and consumer, so is Saudi Arabia. And there are plenty of places, I think, where the interests of Saudi Arabia and the United States converge. One of the things that I wanted personally to get out of my time here in the kingdom was to help foster a positive exchange of information and ideas between the United States and Saudi Arabia. And, and I think some of that has happened. Would you have an example of a way in which that has happened? Yeah, everything that we've just been talking about. <laughs> the circular carbon economy, which was adopted by the G20 summit leaders, including President Biden and King Salman. There are other activities that are underway, both regionally and, and bilaterally between Saudi Arabia and the United States that I think are, are really important. 
And I'm only involved in a small part of that, but I'm delighted to see that attention is being paid to issues that are very, very important to not just the United States and Saudi Arabia, but to everybody. And that's in one sense how I see the, the work that CAPSARC has done on helping foster the circular carbon economy framework. Our knowledge and analysis team here now is working on something called the CCE index, which is a way to rank countries in terms of how they are performing on these things. And the index looks at a lot of different activities and then tries to put them together in a way that provides a fair assessment of how the progress that countries are making. <clears throat> By way of saying that it, it's legitimate, Saudi Arabia falls kind of in the middle, not the best, which includes countries like Canada, Norway, and Germany and others, but way above some of the developing countries that just don't have the financial resources to deal with the problems now. But the progress that's being made in the kingdom, I think, will over the course of the next five to 10 years, move Saudi Arabia from the middle towards the very top of the performance index. And that's actually going to be a positive, not just for Saudi Arabia, but for everybody. Absolutely. Stepping back from the lens of Saudi Arabia specifically and looking at policy opportunities at a global level, what do you see as the biggest need for climate policy? Well, it's really hard to, to say, you know, which one is the biggest. If you would have asked anybody that question two years ago, they would have said climate. And if you ask them today, they're going to say security. <laughs> and, if they, and if you... You know, maybe in another two years, it'll be, you know, the economy. I think we rotate through these things. One of the things that I didn't do when we talked about CAPSARC at the beginning was to talk about the areas that we like to focus on. We have programs in oil and gas. We have an electricity program that looks at not just electricity generation, but the energy transition. We have a macro modeling team that has both energy models and economic models. We have a transportation and urban infrastructure program. We have a very big climate and environment program that continues to grow and do more work. And those areas, I think, go a long way towards answering uh, your question of, well, you know, what are the important issues out there? You know, we have to find ways to electrify what needs to be done and, and have the right fuels to create that electricity. We have to learn to do oil and gas production, refining and use in a way that has a smaller environmental footprint. We need modeling tools to accomplish all that. We need smart cities and transportation alternatives that lead to affordable and cleaner transportation. And we need to study all of the climate and environmental issues that are really, really pressing. Well, Adam, it has been fantastic to have you on the podcast. If listeners want to continue that exchange of ideas and learn more about efforts toward net zero in Saudi Arabia or more about CAPSART, how would you recommend they learn more? You know, if you have an idea, you could certainly find one of our subject matter experts to start a conversation with. and They're all listed on the website. We do workshops and we would love to have student participation in that. And we have coming up in February of 2023, the International Conference of the 
uh, an organization called IAEE, the International Association for Energy Economics. There are a lot of students who belong to IAEE and the conference here hosted by CAPSARC and the Saudi Association for Energy Economics will be an opportunity for a lot of people and I hope learners at Wharton and graduates to come and see Saudi Arabia firsthand and, and meet some of the people at CAPSARC that are working on these important issues. That, that is a fantastic opportunity to learn about. Thank you for sharing. And thank you again for being on the podcast. It's really been fantastic to have you here. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on this episode of The Wharton Current. A special thanks to our guest, Adam Siminski. If you're interested in learning more about CAPSARC, please visit their website, capsarc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.